You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we have a special guest on the episode, and he is a uh, Olympic coach. He's uh, the head coach of one of the biggest universities in the United States, as well as one of the greatest volleyball minds I've ever come across in this sport. So it's an episode that I'm so super, super excited to be able to share with you guys. So you do not want to miss it. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after a number of years coaching competitive volleyball and as the head coach of the biggest college in Canada, I've become obsessed with helping coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to coach efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the Volleyball by Design podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 70 of the Volleyball by Design uh, Volleyball by Design podcast. How is everyone doing out there today? Uh, it's a Monday. We are in the midst of October seasonal planning. Teams are on their way. Practices are going, uh, whether you're in the, in the States, in Canada, or anywhere around the world. I know right now is, is a busy time for everyone, and it's an exciting time for everyone. And um, we have a special guest on the pod today. Uh, but before we get to our special guest, I do want to read a review. We, get, we got another review. So by the way, our listeners, thank you so much for reviewing the podcast. I really appreciate it. As I mentioned last week, it, it, you know, it enables me to provide episodes of value that you guys want to hear. And the ultimate goal of the pod is to educate, grow the game. We want to see this game on a, on a more internet. Well, I wouldn't say international level, but at least in North America, we want to see a lot more volleyball playing. And it's, 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 uh, it's very popular international, I got to say. But I really appreciate the feedback from everyone. So uh, the latest review, we have valuable and usable information. I had the opportunity to be a guest on the podcast and Brian was an amazing host. I love how his podcast episodes are straight to the point giving so much value and usable information. If you're a volleyball coach, parent, or athlete, this is a great listen. And this is from Paige. So actually, we had Paige on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. She was the mindset uh, mindset mental coach, and she provided a great, great episode on you know the mental skills aspect of our game and uh, what you do when, you're, when you commit an error, how do you get out of that headspace and all that fun stuff. So that was actually uh, episode 68. So if you can dial back to episode 68, you guys can get caught up on that. But enough about that. Let's dive into today's episode with our special guest. Now, this guest um, actually was the very first guest that I was honored to have on the podcast. He's our men's, or not our men's, but the the U.S. national team's men's coach. Sorry, I can't. I feel like you are my national team head coach, anyways. <laughs> but regardless, he's the U.S. men's national team head coach. He's the head coach of the men's volleyball program over at UCLA. Um, he is my mentor, and that's John Spra. John, welcome to the pod. How are you, man? Great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. I didn't realize I was number one of something that would become so successful. So congratulations to you and all the work you've done. Oh, thank you so much. And I, I got to tell you, for some reason, every time I, I, I do an intro for you, I get nervous. I have no idea what it is. I, yeah. I, I, get, I get nervous. It's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so appreciative that you're a mentor. Uh, you're, you've, you've such, you're such a pioneer in the game and where you've taken this the sport is unbelievable. So thank you for being here, man. I can't tell you. It's like, uh, I'm in awe. Well, thanks. I don't know if I'm a pioneer. Um, maybe I've moved the game forward on the shoulders of giants. And uh, this last weekend, we had an opportunity to, to spend some time with Al Skates and a bunch of legendary Bruins from the late 70s, early 80s. And I, I think I was really the beneficiary of being in a pipeline of 
of Bruin volleyball players that were really influential in that era. And uh, certainly Skates was a mentor of mine and had, had such a great influence on accelerating my volleyball career. It gave me a head start and uh, got me thinking about the game in a different way. So I appreciate that. Um, I just know that I, I really owe it a, a lot to Al and right. all the different coaches that have influenced me over the years. And, and there's, there's a lot to who I am and it's a lot less about me and a lot more about them. Right. Well, yeah, no, and I can appreciate that. And for our listeners, um, we had uh, Coach Spraw on the podcast uh, last year uh, around August. So it's episode eight. So if you want to dial back and listen to episode eight of the podcast, um, uh, John goes into his background, how he got into the sport. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, efficiency and um, a, a ton of other great things. Uh, so go take a listen to episode eight. Um, but today's episode, we're going to talk more uh, focused on on coaching and seasonal planning and player development. That's been a really big topic over the last couple of months, especially now in the beginning of many team seasons. So let's, mm -hmm. let's take it back to the summer though. I want to, I want to talk about the Olympics a little bit. Uh, and I want to know as an Olympic coach, like, I mean, I don't even know many coaches don't know, but what's the planning? Like what goes into planning uh, for the Olympics? Mm. Well, I, I think there's planning for the Olympics and then there's planning for the Olympics post COVID <laughs> or in the midst of COVID, I should say. And that created a unique problem to solve for us uh, after not being together for essentially almost two years and then having a short summer. That's the other aspect of most Olympics that I'm aware of is they happen earlier in the summer. The World Champs, the World Cup, those tournaments are usually late August to mid-September, sometimes as, as late as early October to mid-October. And so you have a tendency to have VNL on the front end, have a training block, some friendlies, train a little bit more. And, and so the product at the end is usually really high level because you've had the opportunity to train for so long. I think the Olympics, the big challenge is how do you get to that level in a short period of time. And it, this one in particular, after not being together for so long. So for me, it was simply about trying to prioritize the most important things for winning and losing and having a checklist for what those things are. And that's always based upon who you have as a team. It's different based on personnel and experience levels where you prioritize spending your time and you just had to block off. Okay, here's what we need to do. And for us this time around, I thought it was really, really important for us to come back together and connect and coordinate. So I spent a really inordinate amount of time being very, very disciplined about how we were going to get together and, and organize our offensive systems. And then once we got through that, how are we going to move forward and just compete? And, and we had different phases of training that were oriented towards that. Our situation was even a little bit more challenging. We can get to that. I'm sure we will. But um, that was my thought process. Prioritize. What are those big things that we need to really accomplish? What are, what are the battles you can't fight during this summer? What are the little things you'd like to do, but probably don't have time to influence? Um, and and that, that balance, which of course is always a little bit of the art, but uh, that's what my mindset was going into this last summer. Right. So can, can we dive into those phases? So you talked about we have different phases in, in your training. What, what does that look like? Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, it, well, it's different too between UCLA, which I'm, which I'm in the midst of right now, and then the national team. With the national team, these players come back with obviously a higher level of skill. They've been in the program for longer periods of time. If you think about some of the guys that were our veterans, 
Matt Anderson's been listening to me talk for 10 years. So right. he's probably tired of it. But I, I think uh, the young guys coming in at UCLA, they don't even know the language. They don't know the systems. They don't have much familiarity with how we do things. What are the values? You really have to start square one almost every year um, at the collegiate level. Internationally and with the national team, they do have a basic understanding of systems. Now, that's not always automatic. And I think if you decide you want to adapt or change something about the way you run your offense or defense or how you tactically execute, the national team is a little bit of a slow-moving ship because you, while they have a high level of skill and there's continuity between the years, you actually have very limited amounts of training time. Right. So as we make adjustments, say, for example, with offensive systems, you'll have a summer when you introduce it and maybe you get it into, into your offense a little bit or maybe you want to experiment see if, if that's something you want to do. What, what's the end result? Then it's another eight months before you get back together. And then you say, okay, this is what we want to do. Let's move this and, and go all in. And then you get to the end of that summer. It's now the third summer before you say, okay, we experimented, we implemented, what did we learn? How are we going to really execute on this? And so, and we've seen that with the U.S. team as we continue to make adjustments with what we're doing. It, it's a slow moving ship. Um, but it's mostly tactical systems. At UCLA, the phases are a little different. Uh, right now, we're just starting off. We started September 15th, and it really is about the details of, okay, here's how we talk. Here's our fundamentals. Here are the keys that we're going to talk about with those fundamentals. And instilling a language that everybody understands. And then we'll get into a systems conversation once we get the fundamental verbiage in place. Then we'll start talking a little bit more about systems and how we all work together and coordinate together. And then we'll start hopefully getting to some more tactical execution. So those are the, probably the phases. I, and again, I don't, I don't know if I've ever articulated it, but it's, it's more fundamentals than systems, than tactics. And, and then of course you get to the end and you're just focusing a lot on server pass and tactics. So that, that's probably how I would in general create the phases. Right. No, that's, that's fantastic. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, before we get into UCLA, I kind of just want to talk about the olympics now obviously uh un unfortunately it wasn't the the result you guys wanted i i know that H having said that um what were some of your you know uh, without dissecting all the matches i know there's a ton to dissect there but what were your biggest takeaways from the olympics from a coaching standpoint um well they're probably nothing this olympics probably didn't teach me anything new, just highlighted observations we've had over the years and probably talked about before the margins are real thin. At the end of the day, you yeah. look at that Olympics and there was, there were 10 teams that could have medaled. That's pretty remarkable. Right. Um, and, and if you think about, you know, we were very capable of being a medal team at a point gone another way here or there. Um, and so was Iran. And those were the two teams that didn't make it out of pool. And so you 10 of the 12 teams, that's pretty, it's great for the sport. It's great for fans. Uh, the intensity of the event, I've talked about this before. It's just really emotionally exhausting and draining. And how do you build up that emotional reservoir to handle that type of an environment? Uh, that's something I'm sure we'll continue to converse about and see if we can improve. I think for us, it really was about a point here there. Obviously, we start off great um, beating France like we did. And I think if you look back at just the, the Olympic Games, as a whole, I think that match versus Russia was probably something we'll look back on. I really wish we had a swing or two different. We were up pretty big in a couple of those sets that we lost at, at, after 20. And 
not winning one of those sets may, and I don't, I don't want to speak just because I know it's through my lens as coach of the U S team, but I think it potentially had an impact on the entire tournament. Because mm-hmm. I think if, if we had won one of those sets, I think Russia gets to the next match and has to play against France. They have to go all in because they didn't have all their points. And, right. and of course they had six points. They still had Tunisia in front of them. They were onto the quarters. They were in a position where I'm sure they emotionally downshifted a little bit because it's hard to maintain that level of emotional focus all the way through the games. And, and they didn't. So they, they ended up not playing their best volleyball versus France and France gets a big win. And a lot of ways replicated what happened to us in Rio, which is going down 0-2 and then figuring out a way to get a win in that third match and carrying that all the way through the medal rounds. Right. Um, we had the opposite occur. I think we lost that match to Russia and then had an okay match versus Tunisia, dropped a set, which probably wasn't great for us. And then then you play Brazil and Brazil play great. And honestly, and from watching volleyball at the end of the tournament, end of the pool play, I would have told you Argentina was the best team and probably the, was the team that was going to win it. Because I felt like they could defend and pass very similarly to France, but they their middle play was at that point really, really high level. And I felt that their ability to defend at the net in the middle was something that might be a differentiator. And of course they, you know, they end up going five and losing to that, that match to France, which I, right. I haven't seen that match yet, but um, that was my thought. But I mean, I mean, think about that pool. We've all talked about it. I Great know. pool. The, all four of those teams go on to the quarters. We were on the outside looking in and uh, disappointed in that, of course. Um, but all we can do is learn and, and reflect and see what we can pull from that experience and move forward. Right. Not to mention the the scheduling, like how the, the, the Tokyo structure was like, you weren't allowed to do certain things, certain, like all the restrictions, all like the, like, uh, like speaking to some of the players that were there, it's, it was like, you have to deal with your court stuff and you're actually focused. And then you have everything else to worry about on top of that. And some of the game times were all over the map too. And yeah, there was a lot, there was a lot, definitely, a, definitely a different type of Olympic experience. And I can only imagine what it was like. Well, I, I do think that's, that is true. I think it's, uh, it's hard to exactly define the underlying stress that was going on around just that general COVID environment, testing every day and all right. those. You just don't know. Uh, once we were in the village, I felt like it was fairly normal. I, I, I've not been one to spend a lot of social time in the village or go out of the village during Olympic Games anyways. So when it, I was locked in there, uh, I, you know, it felt like a fairly normal Olympics to me once we got in, right. got through a little bit of the quarantine that we were needing to do and get into a little bit of the rhythm. I felt like it was pretty normal. I will say that I, that is one thing. I, I wish we would have potentially simulated the turnaround between playing all the way until one or two in the morning or whatever it was. By the time guys probably got their head on the pillow, had something to eat, got their head on the pillow, it was probably three or four in the morning against yeah, France. That's right. And then that turnaround to play a morning match versus Russia I could kind of tell that we were there, but we just weren't quite at the level or the edge that we had versus France. And I think that probably made a difference of a point or two. And that's the thing I I really, I probably, I'll spend a little bit more time and watch the matches again and Mm -hmm. reflect even some more, but that's what jumps out at me. Um, Other than that, I don't know, Brian, we talked a little bit about the organizational structure, how we went into this summer how disciplined we were about how we integrated people back into the systems, all the lessons we learned from the previous summers about the best way to do that. We were really organized. I mean, I was personally felt 
Uh, I look back, maybe you look at back at our performance. And, and one of the things that we've been very good at is passing and, and we didn't pass the level that we normally uh, had achieved. And I, so you look back at that, of course, hindsight, your wish, gosh, I wish we would have spent more time on passing. I'll be honest. It wasn't one of the things that was at the top of my list just because we've been so good there. And right. so as we were thinking about the priorities, okay, where, what do we need to do over this period of time? I felt like passing was something that was a real strength of ours and, and would be there. And in the end, it just wasn't. And, and maybe that's because honestly, Argentina and Brazil both served the heck out of the ball in those matches. I mean, they were unbelievable in both those right. matches. Right. Um, but uh, other than that, I don't have, I don't lie awake at night with massive regret. I think uh, I've reflected a lot on the John Wooden quote, success is peace of mind, knowing you did your very best to become the best you're capable of becoming. And I think I look back on this and I felt like I did the best job I was capable of. I was on it organizationally. We were on it as a staff. We were collaborative. The staff we had was just phenomenal. We were on it in terms of communication with the athletes and ensuring that they had the support they needed. I felt like that level of communication was high. I thought the team meetings we were having were the best we'd ever had. And then we come out and smash France and I thought we were in a good place and then yeah, just didn't go our way from there. So yeah, it's unfortunate. I'm, I'm sure we'll keep talking about it for years. <laughs> I'm sure I'll never have to stop talking about that, but it is part of the game that we play at this level with the, the skill and talent that's around the world sometimes. Right you're going to have a point go here or there and it's sometimes not going to go your way. Right. Yeah, I know. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. It's uh, it was an experience. Let's call it. It was a great, it was a great experience. Uh, yeah. Let's transition a little bit to UCLA now. Um, so you, you talked about the phases a little bit earlier. Uh, I want to get into uh, this is going to be a kind of an open-ended question, but you know, as the head coach, you know, you, you have your roster beginning of the season. What are you, where is your mindset at? What are you, what are you planning at the very beginning of the season? How are you mapping out the entire season as a whole? So you started by talking about phases, but you want to kind of dive into that. You're, you're starting from, not starting from scratch, but you're looking at your roster. What's, what's, what's 2022 looking like? I think it is almost an opportunity to discuss starting from scratch because all of us are coming into a, a real fall that we haven't had in a couple of years. And True. so the opportunity to come in and think, okay, how are we going to do this? I, I spent a lot of time reorganizing that in, in the off season. Um, and so it's very much, I'm a systems coach. So this may not always be the case for other coaches. Every coach has their own personality, their own skill set. I know really, really high level coaches that aren't necessarily very system technical oriented, but are high energy, high competition, and they create great teams because that their teams take on that, that affect. And they train teams like that. So you see those teams don't necessarily play great system volleyball, but they play hard and they, and they play with energy and they compete. The team, the way I coach is, is very much system oriented. It probably goes back to my Irvine days when I was trying to figure out how to leverage a much less talented team and how was I going to be a more talented team. And I, I felt like we learned how to do that through system specificity. We were very detailed about how we were going to be playing the game. What was your responsibility under these scenarios and clearly articulating those? I think I still, I, because I developed my head coaching style like that, that's, that's where I, I am today. Um, very offensive system minded. And so uh, I have a tendency to structure the fall 
in a way where we, like I mentioned before, just talk about the fundamentals, talk about these skills, not necessarily going back again, referencing wooden, but not necessarily saying, Hey, this is how you put on your socks. Like that, that's where coach wooden started every year. Um, we don't necessarily teach how to put on your socks, but we do teach every single year about some of the basic fundamentals to reinforce how important they are to us and to, to make sure that all of our new players and even our veterans have a reminder about how we talk and teach the game. And then once we get through that phase, then there is the, the systems. This is what we do under these scenarios. This is how we're going to train the rest of the year. This is how we structure our practices. This is why. Um, and then obviously moving forward and, and, and depending upon the experience of your team, how quickly you can accelerate through those different phases changes every single year. Uh, I, I, and as I was thinking about it, I'll go back and say, even before the fundamentals is getting the team together and talking about your vision. So I admit, right. that's number one, right? So number one, how are we, who are we? What are we going to be about? What are we here to accomplish? How are we going to handle ourselves? And how are we going to, what is, what is our ultimate goal here? And, and so having those conversations is really important to me. So it's, it's goal setting, vision, what is our mission, fundamentals, systems. And then from there, it's, it's learning what your team is, strengths, weaknesses, how to leverage those. And again, ultimately probably doing the same thing we did with the Olympic team. You start to get to the end of the year, you're, you're saying, okay, we have X amount of time. Like these are the areas we can make changes and these are not. We're going to have to start worrying about this next fall. How are we going to be successful and leverage our, our strengths now to, to get us through the end of this year and give us the best chance to be successful? Right. No, I like that. So, so you start off with a team vision and this is going to be based on each coach is different. So whatever the, and each team is different. So they're going to have their own vision. Um, I like the, the, then you go into fundamentals. So what are your fundamentals that are must-haves that you are going to talk about every single year? I have a list that I call the demands of a UCLA men's volleyball player. And I, that's part of how I, I start my first team meetings. We have a binder. It has a lot, it has the strategic plan for the program. I want the players to understand how I'm thinking about it from an upper level view. Um, and then we get into these chapters within the binder that outline exactly how we're going to go through the year. And then one of those is, a, is just a single sheet says the demand. Here, here are the things that we demand. Right. And, and, and I might actually say that this is contextual too. Like a lot of what we're talking about is contextual, the personality and belief systems of the coach. And there's potentially no right or wrong answer there. Right. And, and the context for values can change depending upon your organization, your, the level that you're at. If you're coaching a 12 year old in volleyball, who's a novice and has never played before, you're not going to start talking to him about winning championships. You shouldn't. That's right. You shouldn't listen to anything I'm saying, <laughs> you know, like there should be, a separate curriculum for coaches that are helping young players be introduced to the game for the first time. And those things should be fun and interaction and relationships. And how are we going to help this person foster their love of the game? Obviously I'm in a different place. I'm at UCLA. UCLA's value system is different than it was at Irvine because I'm in a different scenario and that could potentially be different than what it is at USA. So there's, there's, like I said, uh, you could listen to some coaches at the highest level and think that's the way to do it. That's maybe you can gain some insight or lessons, or maybe part of their story about how they got to that place is, is interesting because it can give you some different perspectives on how to think. But I, I don't think we can come in here and say there's a definitive answer on how to do this. Every coach needs to understand their own personality, the level of the team they have, where they, where they coach and, and what they want to achieve. Right. Yeah, I know. I love it. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, like, 
your fundamentals may be different than my fundamentals, maybe different than someone else's right. fundamentals of what they want to, what they want to push forth and what their values are. So yeah, I a hundred percent hear where you're coming from. So you mentioned, you talked about, um, so you have your, your, your team vision, your fundamentals. This is how we structure our practice. So, um, how do you, how do you, as a coach, how do you structure your practices? That's a good question. Um, I think I've got a full flow chart for how I t- typically run practices, but I like to get into the beginning and, and, let them play, let the ball get going. Of course, these days with athletes and the way that we've learned to best get them prepared to play, I think the dynamic warm up, I think what we've learned from that is, is effective and minimizes injury. So I think there is 10 minutes there, 12 minutes, sometimes 15, and that can change based on your age. Like I've tried to accelerate that time period with the old guys on the national team and it's led to some resistance. <laughs> so right. I think if we're the younger guys, we can get them going a little bit. But you get through a dynamic warm-up and then you get going with the ball. And it's a, a lot about um, a lot of creativity, small group games, a lot of touches. That's typically where I go. Sometimes it's about fundamental. I, I do like going some high leverage stuff just a little bit every day. I think if you're at UCLA or on the national team, you're using your feet every day. Like we're, we're playing hacky sack for fun or, or kicking the ball around a little bit. You see that a lot internationally. I'm sure that's where I've kind of absorbed right. some of that, but you got to kick the ball. You have to play the ball up top. You got a tomahawk. You got to go one arm. You got to do a lot of these things. So we play around with that every day. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm really a huge believer that everybody has to set. I think you see that at the international level, everybody's a setter. And so we spend a lot of time on setter setting or, or just everybody setting the ball based on where they are on the court. Most of the time, um, and then we get into, obviously, there's options at this point. What's the next phase? Is it, do you want to get right into serving? Some coaches, and I feel a little bit like this, it's nice to get out there and one of the first drills start to compete a little bit just to get the energy where you need it. Um, and then maybe there's a fundamental section. There's obviously serving in every practice. Every coach, I've always wondered, how, how the heck can I get more serving pass into a practice when I want to work on all these things? That's a, that's a never-ending quest. Never end because you, if you want to work on certain systems, so just to finish that thought, at the end, maybe you're competing. And when I'm competing, I'm usually it's a multiple ball drill where we're working on a particular system or scenario. Well, if you're working on that with multiple balls, the more of those multiple balls involve a scenario, that means that there's less serve and pass and less sometimes activity. Because if you're going with all serve and pass, well, that's just a one way drill, all serving, it's serve, stop serve stop so sometimes you get less balls but you get more serve and pass so that balance between energy touches working on scenarios versus serve and pass is a is a there's no right answer there either and it'll be a debate but sometimes on the national team i'll i swear sometimes i'll talk to two different players five minutes apart and one guy will say gosh we really got to flush the system out and we got to spend more time doing that and then two minutes later someone will come up to me and go boy we really need to have more serve and pass and we need to get more of those balls in there and, and so it's just, you know, it's, it's probably a never win situation. Um, but I think that's, again, where there's decisions that each coach needs to make based upon their gut feel or what they think their team needs. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So there's always, so there's a warm up. Um, there is, there's always uh, some kind of systems or ball or fundamental work rather. And then you always end off by some kind of play. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Although I, I will say um, a compelling 
way to run practices. And sometimes I make this shift is to flip practice. What I think this is true too, that we all need to discuss is that sometimes as coaches, we put together practice plans that aren't very much like we play. And it isn't, it's because we want to get better at fundamentals. We want to break things down. We want to have some small group work. And all those things are super important. When we get to a match, what do we do? We go, we warm up, we serve for three or four minutes, and we play. And so I get halfway through the year, I typically do this where I flip practice. I Meaning, okay, I, I, we do need to work on these fundamentals. In the first part of the year, maybe we're, we're working on that type of a flow of practice. At some point, sometimes I flip. And we will do exactly like we train, or excuse me, exactly like we play. We warm up, hit hit for a little bit, serve for a little bit, maybe do a, in the U.S. right now we do a little continuation drill. You have the whole team has the whole court for a little period of time. Maybe you play a little multiple ball, and then you just play. And, and then you put some back-end work on fundamentals. I, I, I do like that, the flipping of the practice, um, and, and, and we do that. I, I might have done that quite a bit with USA this summer. Got it. Yeah. So sorry, I'm, I'm taking notes here while you talk in case you see me looking at another screen. Yeah. Cause this is, this is great stuff. So I do like the idea of the flip practice. Yeah. That's, that's pretty creative. Um, I, I never, I never thought about that actually. That's, that's something that I think many of our coaches, uh, will, will want to implement. That's, uh, that's solid. You, so you're, you're a very, you're a very organized coach. And I know that, you know, based on knowing you for, for some time now, and I know that, you know, games planning for games are super important right? The, the scouting beforehand, the actual, the game day, like all the things that have to happen on game day so that we're, we're, our team is as prepared as possible for, for game day. What does that look like to you? So what, what does game day look like as well as the preparation for a game? Hmm. Two pretty different questions. The prep is the, is where I spend a lot of my time. The game day, the routine is really just talking about the athletes about determining what the best routine is for them individually. And then what are the components of your warm-up? and then understanding those? What is your servant pass? What does it look like? And in general, over the course of a season, I think most teams get used to the rhythm of, of a game day. What is that? I think that needs to be consistent. I think it needs to be laid out. I don't necessarily spend a lot of time worrying about it because we do play X number of matches a year and guys get into that routine. I do think uh, a big co topic of conversation is the amount of data, what information we give them, how much is too much, what's the balance between being able to execute and not. And the contemporary issue that we as coaches today have, which is now we have computers and data that are giving us more and more information and our propensity to feel like we got have to use that data, feel like we have to empower our athletes by giving them all that data. And I we spend a lot of time talking about what, the, what that balance is. What's the most effective way to deliver that information? How much information to give that will really make a difference in the way they ultimately execute? And I don't know that I have the right answer for that, but I will say thematically in general, we've determined that less is more. Right. So on a, um, so prior to the game, you're, you're doing your, 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 you're looking at film, you're creating a scouting report. I don't know if you do, your assistant coaches do it, but you know, you guys come up with that together. Um, how much do, do you give your team a scouting report prior to the game? Yes. How does that work? And how yes. long before? And we've done different things too. Sometimes we've asked athletes to collaborate on those game plans. That depends a little bit on context to have tried that at the university level sometimes. 
Uh, an institution like UCLA is pretty academically demanding. So I, I sometimes hesitate to put more study time on their plate. Mm-hmm. Um, we have done that with the national team. I, I do like being collaborative. Uh, I found it to be really effective on the national team level because these guys know each other so well. They've been playing against each other as national team members for long periods of time, sometimes overseas. So that's been pretty effective. But yeah, we, we do a lot of different things. Is somebody, does somebody really like the drawings? Does somebody like the verbiage? Does somebody like hearing what everybody else has to do? Does another player not even want to hear it because they just want to focus on their responsibilities? Does somebody want to literally like not hear any of it and you just tell me what I need to do in the volleyball match so I don't have to like think too much before the game? So some of it is understanding what your athletes need and, and tailoring that to their individual needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it is, again, this, what are we going to hand them on that day and, uh, or, or the day before? Um, I certainly really like earlier better. And, and sometimes, again, academically, we don't have that option. But, uh, and even the way the weeks are structured. But uh, internationally, we do have some time to prep, get the things where we need it to be, figure out what the priorities are, and, and then hopefully you get it down to one or two really key things that you need to do. Right. Uh, no, solid. So, so far we, we, we've talked about a lot. So coaches listening to this, uh, make sure you're taking notes or, or circle back if you're driving, because, um, we talked about, you know, from the beginning of, of the season, whether it's the Olympics or, or, um, or college club, high school, prioritize what you need to win. Make sure you have a list of that. I think that's, that, that was a really good point. Um, have your team vision. So understand who you are as a coach. What do you want your team to look like? Write Write those things down. Uh, as, as you mentioned, they're important. And, and is that, a question is that a collaborative thing or is that just you as a head coach or is it a collaborative uh, item with the team in terms of what brian in terms of the like so you're, yeah the, the vision the mission of the team the team vision i've done it both ways um sometimes you can sit around in a room and talk about what your most important values are for the team and it doesn't necessarily get you maybe either a where you think it needs to go or it comes to some conclusion that everybody can buy into it's probably a balance. It's probably a little bit like, hey, I want to hear what everybody has to say. And then a leader getting into a room and saying, hey, I listen to what everybody had to say. I've distilled down each of your comments and here's what I've found. And this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And, right. But I think that vision piece is really, really important and uh, probably can't be emphasized enough. Yeah, I agree. We have um, like on our team, we have six pillars. And, you know, mm-hmm. like integrity and all yep. that, all that stuff is a big, big part of our, our, our culture and, and our guys know it and understand it and, and respect it for that matter. So yeah, hundred percent. It's super important. Um, we then transition to fundamentals. Um, you have your list of demands, which, which I like, is that what it's called? List of demands? Or- yeah. It's literally called the demands of a UCLA men's volleyball player. The demands of UCLA. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, the practice structure. Uh, yeah. Uh, flip practice. That is a really cool concept that I've, um, you know, I've, I've heard it in the education world called the flipped classroom. Yeah. I've never used it uh, flipped practice. That's, that's really creative. Yeah. That, that's, it's like staring me in the face all the time. I should definitely try that. And then we talked about game day. Uh, so that's really cool. There, I'm going to finish up here, but a couple more in terms of the volleyball world, like our game is, is changing so much. It's expanding. It's getting faster. Athletes are getting stronger and jumping higher and things like that. And, you know, a few years ago, 
was it a few years ago? I don't know. Maybe it was more than a few years ago, but the introduction of the hybrid serve became more prominent. And then we had, we've been having other things like the, the player in position six, uh, setting it, like going up to an attack and then making that set. And there's a lot of cool things. Where, where do you see the game going in the next five years? You see anything else coming, coming about anything, you know, that we should be looking to do in our gym or, or nothing at all? Uh, well, no, I think it's your, your point is well taken in that it's constantly changing and players are continuing to create, experiment, uh, be free. I, I think when you, your example of area six coming down and flying in is, is one of them. I think it's always interesting too. I see that play a lot Yeah, when it works. It's really cool. Uh, what is the percentage of the opportunities that it works? Even, even a ball that goes over into area, area two on one and the setter setting it immediately to the hitter. I've seen a lot oh, of teams right. experiment yeah. with that and how many times it doesn't work. Right. So there's also that, okay, how much time are we going to invest to ensure that that moment is as effective as we can be? And that's where I think the system philosophy is interesting because it is about, for me, clear, like super clear understanding of everyone's responsibility. I hate bleeding points in any way like that. And then, I think as a coach, what, are this, what is the time we have to maximize our potential and how are we going to allocate that time? That's just that's preeminent in, in all my system thoughts. So those are, those are just a couple side notes. I think as we look at the game today, the thing I'm seeing a little bit more of is the middles running a variety of different routes and drifting into particular areas. I don't think that's a secret anymore. I think you're seeing... <laughs> A lot of middles in the world do that. Um, we've experimented with it a little bit. I think uh, it's, it's, again, can you – is it worth the investment of time? Right. Because it's, it's, it's more complicated. And so does that complexity lead to effectiveness? How do you study that? How do you make decisions about that? What is, again, getting back to is, is that appropriate for your age level and for the time and, and – context that this that you as a coach have and but i do see that quite a bit happening now is, is that's what's uh, and then there's secondary effects of that and so you have to understand what those are and how that affects the rest of your offense and, and does that make it ultimately effective i think on the women's side i i'm still watching a lot of teams i don't watch enough but still watching a lot of teams experiment with the bic and mm-hmm. maybe some of these things that in men's volleyball has been a big part of the game for a while and how does that transition over to what the women do? And is there anything that the women are doing that can transition over to men? Of course, we think a little bit about that too. Um, every once in a while, I see a, a middle blocker that's come out of high school that can run off of one foot. I, we don't have time to teach that stuff. But if he comes in with that natural ability, is that something you want to work with? Is it Can you work it into your offense? I know right. some coaches have been tempted to do that in the past. So I think there's always that creative aspect about how you're going to do something new. And yet, is that going to be worth the time and make it make right. the team better? Right. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So I got two quick rapid fire ones for you before I let you go. Um, if you could go back in time to the younger coach, Spira, what would you tell yourself? Um, I wish I would have subbed Paul Spittle back in, in the 19, in the <laughs> 2005 national semis, excuse me, 2006 national semis. Um, in the fifth set, I wish I would have gone back to him. Other than that, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Brian. I mean, I feel like um, 
maybe it's a little bit more. I did the best I was capable of doing and I, I worked really hard at it. I think I've done a pretty decent job of diversifying my, my observations of the game. Like I, I not only worked for one of the greats in Al Skates, but I just, for whatever reason, I felt like I, I needed to make sure I was listening to what other coaches were doing. And early on, I had a chance to work with Doug Beal and, and others through USAV and listen in on what they were teaching and how they were doing things. I, I remember back in 1999 when swing blocking was like a huge thing and people were starting to think about swing block. Now you don't even talk about it because it's just literally everybody's doing it. I don't know that I've even used the word swing block for a long time. It's just kind of how it is, right? Right. But I was watching as a young assistant coach how that was being implemented and how they were teaching that. What were the cues? What was the progressions? How are those implemented? When did it work? When did it not work? And then having the freedom to experiment. I, I think too, maybe this is a lesson that I was just fortunate and lucky enough to, to stumble into is I think it's really important to put yourself in a position at some point in your coaching career where you can experiment and develop your own voice. I, I inherited a, a program at UC Irvine that wasn't very good. And I, I think that really gave me a lot of freedom to take some risk and develop my own personality as a coach. And Right. stretched me as a coach and I didn't have to worry about losing my job. Right. And so I think that gave me a lot of confidence when I had the opportunity to place like UCLA, which has some level of expectation. Like that does, I don't really think about that much anymore. I don't think about it at, at USA. Right. Um, so I, I, I watched some other coaches and that's a struggle when they get that opportunity. I, I think uh, I got a head job at a young age, right. go get a head job, do it at any level. I think it's really important. I, I was really grateful. I was coaching club at a young age. Why? Because I, I don't think there's really that much difference in turning. There's no difference in literally turning in a lineup when you're coaching 17 and under boys club volleyball. And when you turn it in at the Olympics, it's honestly, it's easier at the Olympic games because now it's on an iPad. You literally can't screw it up. <laughs> so I, I think there's such value in, in doing what we ask our athletes to do from a mindset perspective, from a training perspective, it's about accumulating reps. It's about yep. uh, living the exam, living the words of wisdom that you instill on your coach. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta do it yourself. What you tell your players. And uh, I, I, I don't know, Brian. I think in a lot of ways I was super lucky in that regard because I did have an opportunity at Irvine years ago, and I did have a mentor like Al Skates and. I don't look back on anything and say, gosh, I wish I knew this when, I mean, of course, do I wish I could have been a better drill designer? Do I wish I could have managed matches better? Do I wish I could have known a little bit more about some of these uh, adapt adaptations in the game or what has changed? Could I have been ahead of that? Sure. But I mean, I, I don't, uh, that's always tough. I mean, that's hindsight's 2020. Yeah, I exactly. think in a lot of ways, I was super fortunate with what I had. And I think those are the things that I would encourage other young coaches to, to look for. Right. You, you may have answered this already, but if you had one single piece of advice for coaches out there, what would it be? Mm. Probably certainly mentorship is part of it. I think today, um, I think I'd spend a lot of time trying to understand a little bit more about the mental side of the game, which is a little bit harder to do. I think, uh, again, getting back to just good fortune, I was really lucky to to have a couple experiences on that side of the game that was really helped guide me. I, I know when we talk about, okay, here's our cues and here's our systems. They're pretty, honestly, they're pretty easy. This is how you hold your hands. This is how you, this is how you hit. And it, we can talk about those types of things. 
the metal side of the game, a little bit more abstract, a little bit harder to understand. There's nuance there. How do you, how do you talk to athletes? How do you, where does that line draw on before when you shouldn't be their therapist, but you need to get them to one? Right. <laughs> Where's right. that line between you and the performance psychologist and the line between the performance psychologist and the clinical psychologist? What is the current Gen Z athlete and how do you best impact them? And I think that's, I'd encourage everybody to spend a lot more time thinking about those relationship and interpersonal dynamic issues on your team. Cause at the end of the day, while we leverage, do our very best to train our teams best in the gym, to use the time that we have to leverage systems, to maximize our talent. Oftentimes it comes down to interpersonal dynamics, leadership relationships. Those are the things that I think can be the margins and uh, you get yourself up to that level. And then the margins determine winner or losers. So you got to do both. You got to recruit. You got to coach really well. You got to understand the game, but then you've also got to handle that relationship component with your athletes. Right. Yeah. I the mentorship, hundred percent. The relationships. I always, I always tell our our assistant coaches too. Like we're in the business of creating relationships, and mm-hmm. it's I think it's it's super important um, as part of our job. Okay. My last one for you: dead or alive? Who is one person that you want to have dinner with, and why? I'd like to have, right now. I'd like to have dinner with Scott Galloway. Um, he's a Bruin. He's writing a newsletter that I think is really interesting. I think he's written the last two weeks. His uh, weekly newsletter has been about the status of men in society. And obviously this is important to me because I coach men. So a lot of your listeners are coaching women. This may or may not relate to them, but I, I'm, I've been wondering for a long time um, what's going on with men <laughs> and, and how, how do I best teach, guide, lead, uh, nurture their development. And right now, today, if I could have dinner with Scott Galloway, he's the guy I'd call. Wow. That, you didn't even hesitate with that one. That was, that was instant. Well, thank you, coach. I really appreciate the time that you take. I know you're, you're a busy guy. You got a lot in your place. So thank you for joining us on this podcast. Our listeners, um, I advise you guys to re-listen to this episode. There's a lot of takeaways. I myself took a ton of notes. Um, John, final words for our listeners? No, I just appreciate what you're doing, Brian, and, and getting the word out about coaching and volleyball. I just This game has so much untapped potential for for coaches and particularly for the athletes that we can impact. And if we can continue to dialogue and encourage one another, then, then ultimately make a difference in the lives of young people. And our sport is a wonderful medium to do that. It's a great sport. And so I appreciate uh, what you're doing and what everybody's doing who's listening in to attempt to better themselves to become better influencers of young people around the world through volleyball. Well, thank you for taking the time to help us with that, that vision. And for our listeners, uh, we had John on episode eight. So you may want to go back and listen to that episode as well as uh, today's episode. And that's it from us. We'll see you next week on another episode of the Volleyball by Design podcast. Take care, everyone. All right. Cue the music. Look, are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training? And instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days. When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBTraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.